How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. We'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet to record today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay our respects to elders past and present. Hey there, Disney Files. Thanks for tuning in. Just a little warning that whilst we like to keep things bright and light here at Dissecting Disney Ditties, occasionally we do drop in a bad word or two. So if you're listening at home or in the car with the kidlets, you might want to listen to this later. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, the president will now be here to answer any questions. Uh, well, thank you all for coming. I, I do have time for a couple of questions. People want to know what is the best Disney song? That's all the time I have for today. Thank you very much. Mr. Mr. President, you, you can't you can't walk away from this, Mr. Mr. President. Hello, hello. Welcome right. to dissecting. Di- what? <laughs> I just started talking. I started talking over you. I'm sorry. Take it again. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Hello, hello, and welcome to Dissecting Disney Ditties with Stackers and Will. I'm Stackers. And I am Will. And on this show, we will be breaking each dinners in... Dynasty. We're breaking down the dynasties. The TV show Dynasty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Roll sound. Rolling. Sound production take two. Hello, hello, and welcome to Dissecting Disney Ditties with Stackers and Will. I'm Stackers. And I am Will. And on this show, we'll be breaking each Disney animated classic down, song by song, in an attempt to answer the impossible question. What is the best Disney song? It's not possible. Not probable. Okay. Two, two, two times the charm, you know? <laughs> How you been, Will? <laughs> I've been well, Stackers. I've been well, you know, um... Just taking it day by day, day by day. It's hard when we do these uh, remotely because it feels like we have so much less to talk about because we are just sort of stuck in at home at the <laughs> what moment. What have you been you know doing? I mean? I've been at home cleaning and watching Netflix. How about you? Yeah, the same. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the highlight of I've been my staring at my wall. Yeah. <laughs> the highlight of my week is we replaced three handles on doors in our in our house. Like that was that was hey, the look, highlight of fair, my week. To be fair, that's pretty exciting. <laughs> We have three new door handles. Woo! I've been planning a hypothetical renovation of my lounge room, um, which is yet to sort of pass any sort of approval process. But uh, <laughs> planning it is the fun part, yeah, you know. That is the fun part. The execution can go to someone else. Yeah, especially when you are looking at it every day and you're like, fuck, I just wish I could change this wall. Oh, my God. <laughs> so what have you been watching lately, Stackers? Oh, um, we recently discovered Miracle Workers on Stan, 
which has okay, yeah, a really, really, really good cast in it. It's basically created by um, Daniel Radcliffe and Steve. Is it Bol Bolshemini? Bol, you know that weird looking actor. Oh, Buscemi. Bol Bolshemi. Buscemi. Bush Steve Buscemi. Buscemi. <laughs> The mighty, the boosh, the mighty boosh. Oh God, I live in an enemy. Um, yeah, it's basically, it's basically their show. Um, and season one was awesome. We binged it, I think, in like two or three days. Yeah. But season two was like a completely different storyline. We didn't know what was going on. And it turns out it's sort of like American Horror Story. You know how it's the same cast, but a completely different storyline. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And yep. I think we loved the first <clears throat> one so much that we just stopped watching two episodes into the second one. So we're like, what? what's this? It's not as funny. Um, so, yeah, lost us there. But what are we here to actually chat about today, Will? We are here to talk about 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> What were your overall thoughts and feelings about this movie? Uh, overall, I really liked it. Um, it's a lot better than I ever remember, and I, I, I didn't, I don't remember having any like negative thoughts about the movie. The only thing about this movie that maybe doesn't hit as well for me is uh, the character of Corella Deville, and I think a lot of what I remember about that character actually came from the 1996 live action 101 Dalmatians. Because mm. Glenn Close is so wonderful in that role mm. that I almost forget how kind of bland the character is in this one. Yeah, I was... Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I was spoiled because I actually watched the live action first. So I watched... Yeah, okay. I watched the an animation today, actually, but I watched the live action yesterday and yeah, yeah right. I, I sort of feel the same way. Glenn Close is a force to be reckoned with in that role. It is an acting masterclass to have such an extremely like caricatured, over-the-top villainous character and still make her so palatable. She's just so good in that role. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, look, we know that about Glenn Close. She is a, a an, an absolute force to be reckoned with in any movie that she's in. Um, but it does sort of, yeah, really sort of highlight what is a very small problem, but what is the problem with this movie? And that is just in that characterization of Corella DeVille. Um, I haven't rewatched the live action recently, but uh, I really, really wanted to, because I, I finished this last night. I watched it last night and I immediately turned to Angie and said, should we double it up? Should we just watch the live action? Because I feel like I'm missing something. Like it's just <laughs> not as... Like it's not as meaty. I don't feel as as satisfied as mm. as I thought I would, and so this morning I went through and I didn't watch the whole movie. I just sort of skimmed bits and pieces here and there, and there's a lot of moments that I actually remembered as being part of the cartoon, which are from the live action. And I think we've yeah. said that a few with these um with these yeah. ones that have live actions where we're like, was this from this or this or this or this? Um, like the one that really stuck out to me was the designing of the um of the outfit and when she grabs it and she draws on the cape. Oh yeah. I really remembered that as a part of the cartoon. Oh, okay. But it's, yeah. It's not in the cartoon. No, yeah. it's a different, different relationship. I actually think the live action fills in a lot of plot holes that are in the animation such. It just sort of like gives a reasonable explanation as to why Cruella shows up at their house at all. And yeah, there were just, there were a few things that I thought, Oh yeah, that, that did it better. I actually, 
I, I don't know, maybe I was overtly emotional when I watched this, but I cried twice watching the live action. Oh, really? Yeah, I cried when um when Lucky is stillborn and they're trying to bring him back to the yeah. life. And I cried when uh, Roger and Anita get home and the puppies are gone and... Per, is it Perdita in the yeah Perdita goes yeah, and, yeah. and curls up in the basket where the puppies were yeah. and I was just like why am I so emotional <laughs> <laughs> um but I think it's because it's so so well done and I realized at the end of the film I thought this is I loved this so much more than I loved Lady and the Tramp and I realized it's because yeah. the dogs don't talk they got rid of that need for the dogs to talk, despite the fact they talk in the animation, they don't talk in the live action, and you Which still I think is understand it. Really clever, mm. yeah, absolutely, and I think that's something that's really clever. And um, even though they do talk in the cartoon, I think something that really works for it is the fact that they're not um overly vocal like the adult dogs are. Mm. Um, uh, uh, what are their names? Um, per, uh, Perdita and. Pongo, yeah, like they they talk quite a, a lot, but um the the puppies don't, and I think that work like they do talk, but not a lot, and I think that really works for it. And something that we'll get into a bit later when we actually talk about the songs, I think that this song, this movie, doesn't overuse music in a in a way that it probably could, and in a way that it looked like it was originally intended to. You know, mm. no spoilers, but there's a few songs from the cutting room floor that were supposed to be sung by the puppies as they're sort of escaping and making their way back to London. Mm. And I think that the fact that they didn't really actually kind of works in its favour because it really amps up the tension a bit in that second half. Yeah. Which I know we've sort of spoken about and we both, uh, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, <laughs> you here, but we, but I certainly found the second half a little more boring, but it does yeah, do something no, really interesting in that second half. So to not have them singing, I think is really, um, is, is an interesting choice that really works for it. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the second half is more boring. I found that in the live action as well. Um, just the whole like bark brigade thing traveling across London. In the live action, it goes for five years. But um, yeah, I certainly found that less interesting than the first half of the film. All right, Stackers, before we jump into your famous stats with Stacks, uh, I want to bring you back to a segment that I started last week, Dissecting Disney Dranks. Uh, this drink this week is called Seeing Spots. And Seeing Spots has a fun little uh, thing you can do where it, you grab some chocolate chips and you melt the bottom of it and you line sort of the inside of your martini glass with them so that when you pour the drink in, they're, they're, they're like these spots that stick out like a Dalmatian. Um, it is 60 mils of absolute raspberry vodka. Yum. 60 mils of any sort of chocolate liqueur you can get your hands on. Not Bailey's, because that's more of a coffee thing, but there are a bunch of chocolate liqueurs out there you can get. And 60 mils of cream. You pop that into a, a stirring jug, you stir it up with some ice cubes, and then you pour it out into your martini glass. And we have Seeing Spots. Oh my goodness. That sounds so cool. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite nice too. Chocolate and raspberry really, really like works well together, so... 
Your liquor Highly cabinet right it. now is the envy of all. <laughs> I've been doing up a bit of a, a buy up of um from Dan Murphy's because I'm trying to sort of work my way through the backlog as well. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, I, yeah, I need that that sham board. Yeah, I need for that limoncello. one drink. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's always my thing. You know, uh, I see I need need it, and I'm like, oh, do I spend seventy dollars on this bottle that I really need for one drink? I'm ever gonna make. I mean, yes, but also I get yeah. you. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that's seeing spots guys mix it up enjoy it and back to it stats with stackers get me out of lockdown it is 1961 this is um i never have this information ready this is two years after sleeping beauty was released the music and lyrics are both by jazz composer mal levin and the score is once again by george bruns in the cast we've got rod taylor as pongo kate bauer as perdita Betty Lou Gearson as Cruella DeVille and a whole bunch of other people we've never heard of. Surprisingly, I thought that the nanny was voiced by Verna Felton because the animation looks like all the Verna Felton roles rolled into one. Didn't you think that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it looks like the um, it looks like the the fairy godmother. It looks like the red fairy. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, and it's not. It's voiced by Martha Wentworth. Okay. Yeah. So I just thought, oh, it's weird because she really does look like a Verna Felton character, which is weird because you know it's animation. She could look like anything, but no, it's not. It's um, it's Martha Martha Wentworth. Really interesting. The songs, the most famous songs come out of this film and technically the only song is Cruella de Vil, which went on to be quite a big hit. It wasn't nominated for any Academy Awards. However, it was the highest grossing film of 1961. 1961 was a big year for films was it? as well. Yeah, like 1961. Uh, let me pull up my list. I had a list here. 1961 we had West Side Story. Really? We had The Guns of Navarone, which is a really sort of epic, classic war film. Yep. Um, we had the, the original The Parent Trap. Oh, I love The Parent um, Trap. We had, yeah, so that's another Disney movie, but a live action one. We also had The Absent-Minded Professor, which was remade in the 90s into Flubber. Oh! Um, yeah, yeah. We had also, uh, we had Breakfast at Tiffany's. Wow, that was a huge year. Yeah, um, so really, really big year for, for film and a really big year for Disney as well. Mm. So 101 Dalmatians, Absent Minor Professor and The Parent, the Parent Trap, Trap, all in the top 10 grossing films that year. Wow, there you go. Yeah. So, yeah, this was this was kind of a, a big ch- time for change in Disney. So at the moment, Disney is making a mint off the theme parks, off the television uh, both the television series they've got and just television um, movies and live action movies. So Davy Crockett is still huge. Basically, he was being told to ditch animation completely. Wow. Okay. Because it was basically a dying art form and also because Sleeping Beauty was so incredibly expensive and lost the money. It, yeah. was, it was sort of looking like they were going to have to just cut the animation arm off and go... Um, go full throttle into live animation and focus more on TV and the theme parks because that's where all the money is being made. And um, 
And Disney didn't want to do that because that's what he, that's, that's really the heart of him. He was an animator and to cut animation yeah. would just sort of like break, break the, the, the original foundation of, of what Disney as a corporation is. And so yeah. what actually saved this whole situation was the invention of Xerox. Right. Okay. Which we now just call photocopying. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, so basically the way that animation used to be done is you would have an animator who would draw his animations onto paper in pencil. And yep. when when you I don't know if you ever like tried to learn to draw when you were a kid. I still but... try and learn to draw. Every now and then I go, you know what? I'm going to learn to draw today. But you know, you do you do your drawings and usually have all these extra little lines um, you know, you might do, you want to make a circle, so you draw a cross and then you draw yeah. the circle. You I want to come I mean? back to that too. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. And so they would they would do that and all their rough sort of lines would still be on it. That would go to the next department, which is the inkers. And the inkers would go over all of the um, drawings with ink to create dark lines. And often in this stage, animations would slightly be changed and morphed. And so what we would see on screen was never truly what the animators drew because it would be kind of a corrected version. Yeah. And then those outlines would go to the colorists and they were, I, I think every time I see footage of this, they're all women, um, they would paint the they would paint the animations onto the, the acetone and that would, oh, sorry, they would be on acetone originally and then they'd paint it onto like, it looks like sort of a glass and they'd paint that uh, in reverse, flip it over and then that becomes the animation uh, cell. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And so with Xerox, what that did is it allowed the animators to draw their animations and then photocopy inverted commas um their animations straight onto the glass and then they can be painted which meant that the inkers were no longer required which meant that the process was greatly sped up and also much much cheaper so the team i think in sleeping beauty they had a team of about 600 people working on sleeping beauty which is primarily why it was so expensive yeah. When they introduced Xerox, 300 employees lost their job because we had no need for inkers anymore. Oof. And uh, yeah, just the whole process was much faster. So I think I just need to clarify, when I say they had a Xerox machine, it wasn't like what we all have at work now where we just <laughs> rock up, put yeah. the image on the glass and press a green button and voila, magically comes out. Then complain because it's out of paper and go <laughs> yeah. to the drawer and pull out the new packet, <laughs> throw it in and start looking around your office going, hey, make sure you fill up the damn printer, guys. Come on. What paper jam? There is no paper jam. <laughs> um, so this, all, all I can see is, um, oh, what's her name in the office? Pe- what's her name? The receptionist? Oh, Pam. Sorry, Pam. yeah, Pam. I want to call her Peg. Yeah. That's thoroughly modern <laughs> Millie. Peg. Um, yeah, I can just see Pam with the giant book on how to run the photocopier. It's like a telephone <laughs> book size operation manual. Anyway, um, the Xerox machines originally took up three rooms. They were these gigantic, gigantic oh, machines shit. where the, in the first instance there was sort of a big camera and the camera took a photo of your drawing and then that went into the next room where it came out on glass or something and then you 
take the glass and you put it in another thing and that puts it on paper and then and then out out comes the final image so it was a still a big process but it's still a lot faster than having someone manually draw all of your lines because when you think about animation if you've got a character that's running that is multiple times you've got to trace the outline of that character because it's multiple cells of animation so this is a lot faster and yes so that's why if you look at 101 Dalmatians instantly it looks completely different because the lines are so much sharper yeah and it looks just so much more hand-drawn because the animators have so much more control over this and um and basically what they did is they had um a few people still employed to clean up the animators work because if they did have any working outlines left on the animation that would end up in the film and funnily enough some of that did end up in the film because there was this guy Milt Carl and he used to have these full-blown explosions (laughs) at people who had like maybe erased the wrong line like that line was meant to be there (laughs) and so he ended up as the film progressed he ended up getting more and more raw animations put into the film and apparently I haven't gone and done this because I've got a life but if you freeze frame (laughs) a lot of the movie you can see sometimes there'll be like an extra line on someone's face or whatnot because they just they were too scared of him and just left it in the film (laughs) well that's what I wanted to circle back to is that something that I really really love about this film and I think it's just because you don't see it much more anymore with like the move into computer animation but you do see sometimes those those sort of working outlines flash onto the screen. Like I think Pongo has one scene in particular where he turns a little bit and his face has those work outlines on it. And I just went, that's so cool because it just yeah. shows you someone fucking sat down and drew this movie. And I think that we don't really appreciate that anymore no. because, like I said, it's all computer animation. They build these sets in a computer program and the camera is sort of moved around this virtual set. It's it's so, so cool. Yeah, and if you want to further appreciate it, just remember there are 101 Dalmatians in this film and every single spot is hand-drawn. Yeah. Did you get the count on how many spots there were? Oh, my God, do you have that number? I have that number. What? are there this film features six million four hundred and sixty nine thousand nine hundred and fifty two spots no shut the front door it does not oh my god yeah but i know that pongo has 72 perdita has 68 and each puppy has 32 spots and they all have to be in the exact same spot every time you see them yeah so i actually read a really fun little tidbit about this do do you have the do you mind if i go off on a little no go go i'm really interested okay so the way that they drew these spots um they approached they initially they didn't have any idea as to how they were going to do it because they knew that the the spots had to be in like a rough roughly the same position every time they drew it Mm. because otherwise you know like people would pick up on it so the way that they approached it was they approached it like um they were drawing constellations and so when they had like an anchor spot they knew that the next dot was going to be replaced in relation to that so yeah they approached it like they were looking at constellations in the sky and just went okay cool dot here from that dot i know that it's going to be a little like southern cross pattern something like that you know so that's how they sort of went 
and tried to get that uniformity. And it's it's really like I said, it's just so so cool to think about how someone yeah. drew this Yeah, I mean, movie. Lucky definitely has the coolest spots with his little horseshoe on his back. Yeah. So yeah. cute. Lucky is a, Lucky's the MVP. Oh, he is. Who doesn't love seeing him just sitting in front of the TV? And I love when the cat is trying to get them to escape that that room and he only counts one hundred uh, yeah. or 98 and he turns around and Lucky's just sitting there wagging yeah. his tail and watching the TV. Sitting in front of the TV. <laughs> oh, he's so cute. I um I was highly distressed towards the start of this movie because as we've discussed before I've got a couple of dogs and they're sort of the light of my life and um when they're all being born and they go we've got fifteen and then she comes out carrying one she's like fourteen we've yeah. only got fourteen I was like oh no no I th- I was so distressed it was and lucky uh, lucky brought it together and brought it home. Yeah. Good on you, Lucky. God, that's so much harder to watch when they're real dogs. Yeah. It's so sad. Yeah. <sighs> so, um, um, so, um, so, um, look at all the so arms I'm going to cut out of here. <laughs> Where was I heading with this? Oh, so with the, with the spots to try and save themselves, having to redraw them all the time. Yeah. And also to like individually, design them all because all the puppies essentially the outlines are the same of the puppies yeah so what they were able to do because they had xerox was they were able to just draw the outlines as the puppies and then xerox them so Uh... they could multiply them so it saved them having to draw like 101 dalmatians because they could just sort of like essentially photocopy a bunch of them and then just alter some of the spots which made that process so much easier especially when you think when they're all in the same area that's a lot of cells where they have to redo those spots yeah they're able to to read to sort of copy and paste it and what a perfect movie for it because dalmatians are black and white the xerox machine is black and white yeah so it kind of does it for you you don't have to color anything in (laughs) absolutely absolutely yeah absolutely perfect the the animation in this sort of has two kind of interesting sides first is the interest introduction of the xerox which gives them those beautiful outlines and the second is the the backgrounds are so different stylistically this movie looks incredibly different from its predecessors yeah it does there was a couple of moments where i thought oh that looks a little bit similar like i think the trees reminded me of of um sleeping beauty a little bit but everything else just looks so different Mm. the thing that stuck out to me and i noticed this mostly when i was in the house of um roger and anita is if you look behind them at one point they're talking and the wall is sort of two shades of brown and there is a like a trophy cup behind Anita that is the same the the wall changes it's like a corner so it's light brown and dark brown and the trophy is those colors it's sort of like if you painted two shades of brown and then drew a trophy cup over the top of it and didn't color it in oh okay and then I looked at the pictures on the wall and a lot of the pictures look like they were just drawn over the top of the color yeah, okay. and not colored in. And I looked into this and basically the backgrounds were done by Ken Anderson and Walter Perigoy. And Ken Anderson basically did the drawings and Walt Perigoy did the color. And Walt Perigoy had this amazing kind of eye for color and color blocking. And so he would sort of paint these blobs of color he might put like 
different shades of orange with a bit of yellow over here. And then Ken would draw over the top of them to create, he might see two blobs and go, that's an armchair and draw the armchair over the top of it. And that would become the colors in the movie. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why it looks like that. And when Walt Disney saw it, he hated it. He actively hated this movie Wow. Because he thought the way Ken Anderson had gone about designing the backgrounds was completely inappropriate for the Disney realm. And he thought it was ugly. He hated it. And he, although Ken wasn't fired over it, Ken was sort of um, like Walt Disney made Ken's life very uncomfortable for the rest of his working life. Wow. Uh, which wasn't long because Walt Disney didn't live for very long after this film. Um, and basically, Ken Anderson, uh, I watched an interview and he was talking about how depressed he was about it because he thought he'd really let Walt Disney down. And um, and when Walt Disney, uh, in 1963, Walt Disney was quite unwell and Ken went and visited him and Walt Disney finally forgave him and two weeks later, he died. Oh, God. Walt Disney died, not Ken. <laughs> Walt Disney. And yeah, and I thought that was really interesting because it is really different and it is one of the highest grossing films of all time when adjusted for inflation. Yeah. And yet Walt just had such a problem with the style of animation. That's uh, That seems so weird because we know Walt Disney is such a normal, um, reasonable person. <laughs> it's so weird that he would have reacted in such a way. Yeah. And I mean, this style is, um, it's sort of res a response to the UPA style films, which is the United, uh, what's it called? The United something of America P pictures, I think. United Pictures of America. Okay. Um, I might I might be wrong there, but I think it is pictures. They, they oh, had the I see it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they had the Mr. Magoo films. Yeah. And, and yeah, it was sort of like a response to that because they were in a bit of competition at this point. Yeah, okay. But yeah, it didn't it didn't go down go down well at all with Walt Disney. That is really fascinating because I am I've just looked up UPA so Universe. Uh, sorry. United Productions of America. Productions, there we go. Yeah, yeah. And I can see a lot of sort of stylistic similarities here. And that thing you were talking about, about the, you know, the armchair and all that sort of stuff. There's mm. a really great picture. I might chuck it up on the social socials that sort of highlights this style. And there is differences, but you can see a lot of sort of stylistic similarities there. So that's yeah. really interesting. I guess because it's so, so different to even Sleeping Beauty that came right before it. Yeah. Even though we talked a bit about outlines in that, but... It's just, it's so different. You look at the, that street scene and it looks hand-drawn. I know that sounds stupid, but it looks hand-drawn. Yeah. <laughs> no, it does. And I think, I think so, like something we talked about a lot in the Sleeping Beauty episode was the art and how different it was and how beautiful it was and all that sort of stuff. And this is like really different in a different way. And it is really, really different again from Sleeping Beauty. So it's interesting that Disney is going through this really sort of transitionary phase where it's it's experimenting with all these different mm. styles. I think it's just desperate to stay alive at this point. Which I find really interesting because, yeah, Sleeping Beauty wasn't a big hit. Um, but, like, do you happen to know what else was happening in Disney at the moment? Were they having trouble with their live-action films or were they were they? No, I think it's just... There? Well, uh, sorry, it's to keep the animation of Disney alive. Right. It's just sorry, that yeah. everything else is eating is eating it up. Yeah, because okay. The the theme park has absolutely exploded and television has exploded. And it's kind of like, why did why do we need why do we need to keep this 
alive. It's losing us money, if anything. It's yeah, so yeah. much time and effort and manpower goes into these movies that make nowhere near the amount of money that like Davy Crockett is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think it was just Disney at this point is spread so, so thin between different endeavors that it sort of felt like something, something had to give. Yeah. Okay. And thankfully it didn't. <laughs> no, thankfully. Yeah. Cause I mean, Disney has a, has a, another sort of flop coming in, in the mm. sword and the stone. But then it sort of it starts to go on a bit of an upward trajectory from there because we get you know the Jungle Book which is fantastic and then we sort of get a couple more and then we get into the Renaissance which revitalized actually it Young all. Will um we are on very much oh, a downward slope a very downward slope oh, uh. Sword in the Stone it all starts heading downhill from there we almost again lose the animation uh, department completely they pretty much get shipped out into a portable by the eighties wow and they pretty much get robbed of any work. And then, uh, and then, yeah, cue, cue the Renaissance. But before that, big trouble, big trouble. Wow. And then even after the, uh, even after the Renaissance, big trouble until we get into the second Renaissance, inverted commas, because again, live action and Pixar start taking over. Yeah. And all of a sudden we see the death of the Disney animated musical. It's funny because we do see Disney, or at least I view Disney as this big sort of monolith of filmmaking that has existed for years and that they've never had any problems. It's really fascinating going through it like we are and learning about all these problems that they were having and how often they came to closing the doors completely and how different the world might have looked Mm -hmm. without it. Yeah, and it is, especially when it is such a big cultural influence as well. Yeah. You just, you kind of can't imagine the world without Disney. Like, nothing is quite this big. And anything that got quite this big, Disney bought. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Marvel's huge, let's buy that. Fox is huge, let's buy that. Like... It's sort of like the the blob, you know? It just kind of absorbs things as it moves through time. (laughs) If you go into looking into what the Disney Corporation actually owns, it is terrifying. It feels like they own the world. Yeah, yeah, they will. They kind of already do. They'll own everything. We'll be going to work at, uh, you know, Disney Secondary College and things like that. (laughs) (laughs) Although, that sounds kind of appealing, actually. That does sound kind of fun. (laughs) All is well at Disney High. So, for those of you who have not... I don't have it in front of me. (laughs) I'm about to say the synopsis and I realise I don't have it anywhere in my vicinity. Um, Okay. (laughs) Okay, so for... Uh, if anyone's out there named Stackers and you want to come and be on a podcast. Please don't replace me. <laughs> no, never, never, ever. All right, never, so ever. for those of you who have not seen 100 Dalmatians in a while or maybe you've only seen the remake or maybe you've only watched Cruella, which neither Will or I have seen, so we have no idea what the difference is. Okay, so 101 Dalmatians <laughs> tells the story of two Dalmatians and their owners who get married literally with within hours of meeting. The family is tormented by the evil Cruella de Vil, who Roger and Anita just don't have the balls to get a restraining order on. Cruella is clearly after the dog's puppies to turn them into fur coats, and despite many red flags, Anita just keeps feeding Cruella information about when these puppies will be ripe for skinning. 
The puppies are born. They, along with 84 other Dalmatian puppies, get stolen. The dogs send out barks all over London to find them, and the puppies escape by covering themselves in soot to look like Labradors. Cruella goes down in spectacular fashion. The puppies make it home, and because Roger is now a successful songwriter with his one-hit wonder Cruella Deville <laughs> defamation suit impending, they buy a big house where the 101 Dalmatians can all live. The end. I mean, look, it, we know that Corella's not a, a great person, but Roger doesn't have any reason to know that except just a hunch. So to release a song that's basically a, a spectacular roast of this person who you just don't <laughs> like all that much is a bold, ballsy move. And yeah, <laughs> 100% defamation suit incoming. <laughs> Yeah, I just I like that it becomes his hit, and it's her full name. It's not even it's there's no subtlety here. It's her name. Yeah, and Corella Deville's not a common name. Like she'll go into the shops, pick, <laughs> you know, just in her tracksuit pants to pick up some a loaf of bread or something, and someone will look at a card, like a credit card, I and like go, "Oh, Corella Deville." I like the song. <laughs> Apparently, you know, I did. I when I did see you, I did get a sudden <laughs> chill. Uh, so it. it I get it. The song works. So this Far is out. this is based on a, a children's novel from 1956 called the The 101 Dalmatians by Dodie Smith, uh-huh. not Doody Smith, as I wrote in my notes. Um, and <laughs> I was like, oh, that's an interesting name. Amazing, amazing. We love toilet humour. <laughs> so Dodie had a Dal- Dalmatian whose name was Pongo, which is where this story found its inspiration. Yep. And originally this was a serial in Woman's Day called The Great Dog oh, Robbery. okay, right. Mm. And uh, the original story synopsis is in your inbox, Will. Sure is. Let me just open it. I Hang on, let me just... Okay. <clears throat> The 101 Dalmatians by Doody Smith begins in London, where we find Pongo and Mrs. Pongo and their humans, Mr. and Mrs. Dearly. The humans are obedient and mostly intelligent. That's right, the world we live in here is one in which the dogs own humans, not the other way around. <laughs> that's very <laughs> that's very kind of cute. And I think they do touch on that a little bit in the cartoon from memory, uh, but that's very cute. I like that. Uh, yeah, it, it kind of gets lost a little bit later on. It- you forget that that's how they set it up, but it's a cute yeah, opening. It is, it is. Mr. Dealey is a wizard of finance, and the occupation of Mrs. Dealey is irrelevant. Instead, there's a whole page about their butler and nanny, and nobody cares. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Dealey this book is was so boring. Oh yeah, look. <laughs> Mrs. Dealey is pretty, and Mr. Dealey isn't handsome, but has the kind of face you don't get tired of. In quotation marks. <laughs> Uh, enter the fabulous Corella Deville in a skin-tight emerald green dress dripping in rubies and adorning a white fur coat. As per the movie, her hair is half black and half white, but unlike the movie, she has a husband. Upon seeing her, Mrs. Dealey explains that she and Corella went to school together where she was expelled for drinking ink. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was to explain her half white, half black hair. Yeah. But no, apparently she always had that. <laughs> I just think that that's a really odd thing to expel someone for. <laughs> um, but I suppose, you know, that's in 2021 where I can have a bin thrown at me and, you know, like nothing happens. So. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Uh, Corella invites them inside to meet her husband, who, of course, is a furrer. 
They say then. <laughs> I'm sorry, I read it initially as a is fairy. a fairy. I knew is, you could say yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what an interesting children's um, story this has become. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, they say then and there that they want to turn the dogs and their puppies into a fur coat. But just like in all the other iterations of this story, the darlings don't take note of this giant red flag and move to a different continent. <laughs> Instead, they agree to have dinner with the psycho the following week and then invite her over for dinner the week after. Oh, boy. I just no don't protection understand. mode She's, at all. Her motivations are so clear. Like, there's no, she stole the puppy. Shocker, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even in the the movie, when we're not really sure what she does, like she is so hell bent on getting those puppies. You know something weird's going on. Yeah. At the second dinner, after dealing with Corella's weird obsession with Pepper, the nanny bursts in and says the puppies are coming early. This sends Corella into a frenzy, screaming, "Where are those puppies?" When she sees they don't have spots yet, she tells the darlings to drown them. Oh, oh boy. When Mrs. Darling replies in shock at the thought, ba uh, Corella basically tells her to swallow a cup of concrete and explains that she drowned dozens of her cat's kittens. So no, harden up, bitch. Far out. Corella is, has no chill. Um, yeah, real dark, real quick. Uh, they get rid of Corella and Mrs. has her puppies in peace. The vet tells Mrs. Darling to find a foster dog so that Mrs. isn't left to feed all 15 puppies on her own. Sorry, I just realised out loud this sounds so stupid because we've got Mrs. Darling and Mrs. So Mrs. is the female dog. Just for okay, those of so us yeah, listening, there's Mrs. Darling, the human, and Mrs. the dog. <laughs> Right, okay, because I've just seen what's confusing. coming as well, and I'm so confused. <laughs> uh, so <let> me... <laughs> Mrs. Darling happens to find a near-dead dog on the road. After getting the dog home and giving her a bath, they realise that this dog is also a Dalmatian who has just given birth and therefore will have milk to give these puppies. They call her Perdita. Perdita's backstory is that she was homeless and got married because it's important to get married before you bonk kids, and then had puppies. So, so weird. Yep. So weird that she has to get married as a dog to then have puppies. So yeah, weird. Yeah, because good Christians uh, she woke all up get married one... before they have babies. Very true. Very true. Sorry. Um, uh, Spiritus Sanctus or whatever it is. I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she woke up one morning to find the, the puppies gone, got hit by a car, and hey, presto, here we are. Far out. Okay. <laughs> Whilst the darlings are out, Corella pops on over and distracts the nanny whilst her henchmen steal the puppies from the yard. After weeks go by, the Pongo, Pongo and the missus st start a chain of barks all over England in a desperate plea to find their puppies. Skip a few pages over to a random dog walking past an old abandoned house surrounded by a high fence. As he's walking past, he narrowly avoids a concussion from a flying bone that lands in front of him. Inscribed on the bone are the letters SOS. He takes the bone back to a farm and gives it to a cat who swiftly climbs a tree and jumps the big wall to see the place swarming with Dalmatian puppies. She returns to the random dog to inform him to sound the horns of Condor. <laughs> nice reference. And the barking telegram eventually makes its way back to Pongo and the missus. Uh, Pongo and missus then travel for a journey that rivals that in the second installment of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings to finally meet the cat named Pussy Willow <laughs> in Suffolk, where they rescue the puppies. They cover themselves in soot, break into Corella's house and fuck up all of her furs and make it home with all 99 puppies. The dealies put out an ad in the paper to see if anyone was missing their puppies, but it turns out Corella legitimately bought all of the other dogs, so nobody responds. 
They end up keeping the puppies, moving into the abandoned house with the high wall, which was previously owned by Cruella, but she's left the country in financial ruin because of the fur incident, and they all live happily ever barked Boo. <laughs> the end. Ah, <laughs> uh, that, that, that pun. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> it is so boring when they're looking for their dogs. It literally goes for like two chapters. I was like, come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, and I think that that is, as we've sort of both said, we didn't love the second half of the, um, of the movie. I think the interesting thing that the second half of the movie does is that it turns it into a little bit of a sound of music escaping the Nazis type of thing. Um, and mm. it is quite tense at a couple of moments. So I think that that's quite interesting. But apart from that, yeah, look, the, the, the framework of, of the movie is, is so close to this story. And it's much closer, I think, than any other original synopsis we've read. Yeah, it is really close. And it's just sort of like, I don't understand in both this and the animated one, why mm. Cruella is allowed into their home. And why they continue to have this relationship with Cruella. Like, it's clear she wants the puppies. Don't tell her they're born without spots. Just say, oh, well, whoops. You know, don't don't say, oh, no, the spots will come later. You know, it's basically saying, come back back in a few weeks. It is really, really um, weird. Like, Mm. as I sort of said at the start of this, I think that the weakest part of this story is Cruella. And I think that that might only be because we've seen the Glenn Close one and we know how strong the character can be, but it just feels a bit empty in this one. But yeah, like sort of explaining her away as this old school friend of, um, uh, what's the, what's the human wife's name? Anita. Anita. Yeah. As this old school friend of Anita um, is a bit of a, yeah, it's a very weak thread to combine there. Cause like I said, they don't really explain anything about Corella's job um, what what her motivations are until the end. Like, I mean, yeah, we don't really know anything about Cruella at all. And you're right. The, the, the fact that they keep allowing this person back into their home, I suppose you could put it down to a bit of like old school loyalty almost. Like we all kind of know a Cruella, I guess. Do you know a Cruella? <laughs> well, well, no, because I have, I make good life choices. Like I know Cruellas, <laughs> but I'm not friends with them. Like they don't come over to my house. No, absolutely, yeah, and I think that that's sort of the point you're, you, that you're making there, and I, yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. I know a Cruella, but I'm not going to invite her over to my house at no. all. So, yeah, it's it's very, very strange. I think the, the choice that the movie makes in making Cruella Anita's boss is much stronger, yeah. and it just makes it make much more sense because, yeah, if your boss suddenly turns up to your house you're going to try and make them happy. You're going to invite them in for a drink. You know, you're going to like, yeah, sure. Stay for dinner, whatever. Just don't fire me. Like, yeah. yeah. So that's probably like the biggest difference between the three iterations. So in the original book, Cruella is their neighbor. They see her outside her house and she invites them in. And that's when they first have that proper interaction with her. And Anita says to, oh, she's not Anita in that. She's Mrs. Dealey or whatever the names are. Um, yeah, she yeah. says to her husband, no, I never got along with her. I was terrified of her when we were kids. But right, she's saying, yeah. come in, come in. And that's where she sees the dogs and it all kicks off. In the animated film, uh, there's a throwaway line about she's an old school friend and Cruella just shows up at their house and we're not really sure why. And then in the movie, Anita works at the House of Deville, which is basically like Vogue. Yeah. And she designs outfits for Cruella and that just seems like, so, and then um, she's designing an outfit based on Dalmatian spots. She's got a picture of Perdita with her. Cruella sees it. You've got 
Dalmatians, spots would be great. I want to kill puppies. So it was just made much more sense to do it that way. Yeah. I also love in the in the live action how much they just lean into how ridiculous the whole marriage part of this is. Yeah. <laughs> um, they they <laughs> they have because um, in the in the animation they meet and they get married in the next scene. Like there's no there's no relationship story because that's not the point of the story. Yeah. So in the movie. They just, instead of trying to get around it or make it make more sense, they lean right into it. They have the hole, they fall in the pond. She goes back to his house because he feels really bad that she's wet as well and they sit in front of a fire. And he's just basically being a nice guy. And then he offers her a cup of marriage. (laughs) And then he says, I meant tea, cup of tea. She's like, no, you said marriage. He's like, no, I meant tea. She's like, well, I would. Would you? Will I? I do. I will. And then they get married in the next scene. I just sort of like high-fived it for just leaning into how so ridiculous yeah, yeah, yeah. the idea is. <laughs> like, hey, I just met you. Do you want to get married? <laughs> it's basically what happens in that film. Yeah, yeah. It is. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. So good. And he makes video games. So in the original, he's a, like a financier. Yeah. In the live action, he makes video games. And in the... In the animation, he's a songwriter. Yeah. So they're three completely different jobs, which I find really interesting that not one of them shares that likeness. And again, in all three, oh, no, actually, and Anita gets a job in the live action. Yeah, but yeah. in the other two, it's like Anita's just there. Yeah, and I think that's probably... <laughs> job's irrelevant. Even though this, like, this movie doesn't have any sort of racial problems or anything that we need to address, but I think the problems it does have is just that the female characters are very much just there. Like, they're kind of helpless and they don't really know what to do which is is kind of frustrating yeah and then they're not even stay-at-home mums because they don't have kids in the live action she falls pregnant yeah okay but she's got a job whereas the others they're just yeah they're just there yeah interesting okay well stackers did you have anything else you wanted to talk about in regards to this movie nope i think we should jump straight into the songs all right so let's take a quick break guys and then when we come back we will talk the songs Hey there, champions. Will here, just taking a quick second to thank every single one of our Patreons for their continued support. Without you guys, we just couldn't make the show. So thank you so much for everything that you contribute and everything that you bring. If you want to join our Patreons, you can do so at patreon.com slash dissectingdisney. However, if you aren't able to support us financially, then the best thing you can do for us is share us with your friends. Tell them what we're doing. Tell them that we're trying to find the best Disney song and then point them in our direction best way we can grow the show is by getting the word out there also if you like hearing my voice you can find it on another podcast tabletop unknown the show where we play test lesser known tabletop rpgs so tabletop role-playing games that aren't dungeons and dragons anyway that's it from me back to the show so this movie is very very different musically to all of the other disney animated movie musicals In that it kind of only has one song in it and then two other mini songs. Very short, yeah. Um, and it's a very contemporary score, which matches a very contemporary movie. It's pr- I think I'm right in saying it's the first movie that is set in the time period that it exists in. It is the second. Dumbo is the other one. Ah, yep, okay. Yeah, but it, you're right. It is one of the very few. So it's super modern and it's very, very jazzy. Mm. And so basically what's happening in the jazz 
scene is jazz is sort of being pushed out by rock and roll but it was sort of big big in the 50s because in the 50s we had john coltrane and miles davis and we also had on the top of the charts were ella fitzgerald with misty and nat king cole with the song that i didn't write the name down of but it'll come to me might have been mona lisa it was mona lisa because it won the won the academy Awards. and so jazz is still big in the jazz world, but not so much on the charts. There'd there'd be like maybe one hit. I know Misty was on the charts by itself for a while and everything else was rock and roll and pop. But you can sort of hear the influences that are in this film. And the composer, this is the first time we've had a composer that's one person that did the music and lyrics. It's not a team. Okay, yeah. And his name is Mel Levin. Yeah. So... Mel basically was writing the music for the UPA Mr. Magoo series, funnily enough, oh, okay, which right. is what yeah. this movie's animation was competing with. And he'd been writing music for Peggy Lee, the Andrew sisters, Nat King Cole, Dean Martin. So kind of the big the big stars of the time. Sorry, Peggy Lee, the not that good singer? or The, the not that good singer, <laughs> quote Will Sayers. <laughs> Let's get that on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, basically, Walt... Disney had heard his work and thought it'd be really cool to get him involved. So he got him on board to work with George Bruns and they worked together on a, a short called Noah's Ark and a lot of things that were happening on TV. So they'd been working together for a while. And Walt said to him, hey, we're writing this movie about a bunch of dogs. Could you come up with a song about the villain? Her name's Cruella DeVille. And so Mal Levin wrote a bunch of tunes and then literally literally minutes before he had to go in and do the pitch, he picked Cruella DeVille. Yeah, okay. And, of course, they they loved it and that became a hit and it ended up being the most successful song he wrote in his entire career. Wow. All right, yeah. So at the same time as this movie, he was also writing the lyrics for Babes in Toyland and he won, no, he didn't win, but he got nominated for an Academy Award for writing the music for that or the lyrics for that, but um, okay. not Cruella. Yeah, interesting, because this, like, Cruella Deville slaps. Mm. It's a banger. It's a total yeah. banger. And it's actually very heavily influenced by uh, a work that came out by Thelonious Monk that I cannot pronounce, but I'll give it a try. Yep. I think it's Balu Bolivar, Bolivar Balu's R. Right. We may post this on the socials because no one's going to be able to look that up based on what I said. But have a listen to just the start of it. similar it's the same melodic line at the start so um it's clear there's some there's some influences around there but yeah it's kind of like riding the jazz wave given that um two movies before this we had lady and the tramp which was composed by peggy lee and sunny burke which again had some very strong jazz influences in in the score, namely in He's a Tramp. Yeah, okay, yep, yep. So we're kind of leaning in uh, into pop culture that 
way, I guess, because Sleeping Beauty musically had nothing to do with the music of the time, whereas Peggy Lee was a massive sensation in the 50s. And then we've got um, this guy who's come in who's been writing for the pop oh the pop slash jazz sensations of the time so we're really leaning into that to try and push the music which is so funny because then we look at it and there's really no music in this film yeah no it did surprise me because we, <laughs> we were talking about it and we had discussed possibly merging this and sword in the stone because there is like so few songs but um i mean the songs that are there are catchy but yeah, there's not a lot. There's not mm. a lot at all. Yeah. And the score is really jazz- jazzy as well. And that's because George Bruns was actually a jazz musician before he joined Disney. Okay, yeah. And he wrote arrangements for jazz bands and he actually played tuba in a Dixieland group. Oh, so okay. his roots are actually in jazz as well, which you would not know based on the Sleeping Beauty no, score. No, no, not at all. So this ended up being a, a really good pairing that resulted in this very, very contemporary jazzy score. Cruella de Vil, Cruella de Vil, if she doesn't scare you, no evil thing will. Oh, To Roger. see her is to take a sudden chill. <gasps> Cruella, Cruella. Still slaps. It's so good. Still slaps. And that version recorded by Dr. John in the... Live action. Oh, so yeah. good. Cruella DeVille, Cruella DeVille. If she doesn't scare you, no evil thing will. To see her, yes, to take a sudden chill. Cruella, Cruella DeVille. It's funny, watching this sequence, Angie turned to me and said, you know what, you are Roger. Um, particularly when he goes upstairs <laughs> and he starts like playing all the different instruments and like stomping on the floor. <laughs> I absolutely lost yeah. it when I saw this. I thought it was so funny when he's playing the trombone yeah. down into the floor. Yeah. Like he's being an absolute pain in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that this this song and this sequence does a really beautiful job at sort of like displaying their relationship in that in Anita and Roger as really quite playful and loving yeah. like cuz we don't get any of that sort of build up into their loving relationship it has to sort of happen um retrospectively because we jump straight into them getting married essentially yeah. so i think that this song does a really great job at showing that so for music i gave this a 4 for lyrics i gave it a 3 for uh, animation, I gave it a four because, it, like I said, it's just so fun when he's upstairs just having <laughs> the time of his life. And contribution, I gave it a four as well. I was so close to giving this flat fives. Really? Okay. So yep. close. I think musically, this song is bang on. He has been tasked with uh, writing a, a jazz number about a creepy creepy woman yeah. and the melody line goes da, 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 da. then it goes back da, 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 da. back again da, 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 and it's just like it's such a sneaky it's chromatic it's sneakily sort of like it comes in and it never quite re- reaches the kind of climax because at the end of it it goes da 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 it never sort of 
reaches where you think it's going to reach because it's just yeah. like it's sneaky and it's coming for you but you never know when it's going to get you i just think musically he nailed it absolutely yeah in the way that it's sneaky but it's also just super fun at the same time which really captures yeah. roger's nature so i gave it a five for music because i can't Beautiful. think of how this song would have been done better to serve those two purposes in being about a horrendously villainous woman and also being really fun. Yeah. I then gave it five for lyrics. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. I think, again, it just describes her so beautifully. Yeah. And in such a playful manner. And I couldn't think again of how else you could have written that song. No, absolutely. And I think when I did my ratings and I was thinking about this discussion and what we might say about it. I thought that the lyrics is probably the one where I could be convinced to make it higher because I don't know that I really considered them well, like well enough. So I'm going to change lyrics to four because you're absolutely right. And I think that the achievement of this song to write a villainous song that is also playful and a real earworm is like genius it's so good yeah i really love the line she's like a spider waiting for the kill like it's yeah. so so sharp and the, an- <laughs> the anticipation on that is that where he sort of goes he's like a spider waiting for the kill yeah like, yeah. <laughs> yeah the anticipation on that is so good yeah it's so so great um and then i gave it for animation Five. Yeah, okay. I could not stop laughing. I think the way that they approached okay, it's got a trumpet solo and it's got a it's got a piano solo, then a trumpet solo, and then a um trombone solo, which easily could yeah. have just been underscoring. And they yeah, yeah. instead of got Roger playing it, but he's not just jamming out, he's being trying to be so sort of malicious about the way he's playing. like he's he's trying to be a little sneak like a little stinker he's like he is playing as loud as possible he's playing at the floor to make it you know shoot through those floorboards as strongly as possible and you can just see anita kind of like staring at the roof like shut up and he's like all right i'm done with that instrument on to the next one i just i could not stop laughing i thought it was so brilliant (laughs) i still think it's funny thinking about it just the trombone one gets me and then he comes downstairs and like she has every right to be so angry and he doesn't even consider that he picks her up and he starts dancing with her (laughs) i'm still writing this song baby i'm writing it good and i just i loved it i was like take the fives these this is fantastic yeah i gave it a four for contribution yeah because i i just i don't i don't know i think it's because we don't see him ever do anything else musical until the end like i feel like we're really setting up he is a singer songwriter this is where the the show's gonna sort of go yeah and then we just don't see it again and it's so well established there but it it's a storyline that goes nowhere until the end where he sits down at the piano and you know sings a few lines of dalmatian plantation i think the song does a really brilliant job at giving us an overall sense of the character's individually as well like i think that the contribution to the story is really really fantastic in that it tells us exactly who roger is he's Mm. a he's a jokester prankster you know he he takes things really fairly easy he doesn't really care like he doesn't he doesn't like corella 
at all, mm. but he doesn't think she, he's she's evil at this stage. But he just doesn't like her. Um, and then it shows us who Anita is as well, because she's like she's acknowledging it, but she's not really taking part in it. Um, and then it tells us who Corella is. I think it's a really fantastic song, and I think maybe a three rating for that's a bit harsh. Uh, rating it at a three, but uh, I'm, I'm going to leave it for now. It's a song that no matter how many times I hear it, no matter who's singing it, it's just all about fun. And I I love it. It's fun with a point. Yeah. All right. So that's Corella DeVille. I think it's just, it's a fantastic song. It holds up so well. Yeah. It's a banger. Uh, so that brings us to the first of the next two inconsequential songs <laughs> in this movie, and that is Canine Crunchies. Canine Crunchies can't be beat. They make each meal a special treat. Happy dogs are those who eat. This is Canine Crunchies. Canine Crunchies all contain selected meat and wholesome grain. Toy Chihuahua are great game. I love Canine Crunchies. This song is so cute. It's so cute, but... Like, I just, I didn't rate it highly. And I feel bad for that because it's not a bad song. It's just, it, it just doesn't do anything. Like, it's just blah. It, it, it exists. <laughs> it's just there. Yeah. The singer in this is Lucille Bliss, who was Anastasia Tremaine in Cinderella. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. She is also Cute. the voice of Smurfette. Uh, really? Yeah. Wow. So I feel like that, so much of this podcast is just me going, oh, really? <laughs> like, just... No, no, no. Your catch, your catchphrase is, oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so I've noticed you can make a great drinking game out of us. Every time I say like, <laughs> and every time you say interesting, and I, every time we record another episode, I think to myself, okay, just don't say like. And then I don't think I've done it. And then I listen to it back. I'm like, like, when they like, um, did that like, and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> and we heavily edit ourselves as well. So. And we do. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> One day we'll give you a peek behind the curtain, guys. <laughs> oh God. Okay. Oh um, God. Canine Crunchies. Did you bother rating it? I didn't. I watched it twice. Yeah. So it went past and Tim was actually sitting next to me and he's like, it's a song. It, see? And he's like, hear that? He's like, <laughs> and he said, it's a song. It's a song. And I said, yeah, but it, it didn't go for long. He said, no, we're going to listen to it again. You're going to rate it. And I just, I couldn't. It lasts for about seven seconds or something yeah so yeah. i didn't i mean you feel free to share your rating i won't add to it so it's gonna go to the bottom of the pile no look i probably won't because i think the problem with these shorter songs is that anything we rate it isn't really doing it justice mm. um because it is a really cute song and it just it it doesn't contribute much to the story it it shows us a little bit about who the you know, the puppy's like watching TV and that plays a part later in the movie when, as you were saying, when Lucky is sitting watching the movie while the, the TV while they're all escaping. Mm. Um, but yeah, like it's not fair to rate it almost because it is so short that any rating we give it isn't really going to do compete. it justice. It, it, it's, there yeah, is a full cute. length version of this somewhere, but I I haven't been able to find it. And it's not in the film, okay. so we couldn't rate that anyway. But yeah, yeah. we just get all a right. snip of it. Okay, so let's not bother rating Canine Crunchies then. Okay. But this does bring us to Songs from the Cutting Room Floor. Songs from the Cutting Room, Songs from the Cutting Room, Songs from the Cutting Room Floor. Okay, now, all of the, th the there's three 
songs from the cutting room floor I'm going to present to you today. All three of them take place in this section of the movie between Canine Crunchies and Dalmatian Plantation, which is about so eighty percent of the between, movie. So between now and the credits, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, because so much happens in that in that time period. Um. So the first song is called "Don't Buy a Parrot from a Sailor." Yeah, so that's "Don't Buy a Parrot from a Sailor," and it is, it takes part, it takes place in the movie when they're sitting in the old abandoned house watching the TV with all the um all the puppies in the room with them, and right. you know Corella comes in and tells them that they have to kill the puppies. Um, yeah, so it's basically just about it's it's sort of in the style of like a Cockney pub chant, um, and they're just sort of sitting there drinking their wine and singing this song. Right. So it's another get lit. Song. I was I was just thinking you could totally try and get me to guess when the hell these songs were meant to happen. That one I was like, <laughs> um, two puppies got lit at a bar. Um- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't really get the point of this song apart from it just being a fun drinking song. Like I'm looking at the lyrics. Mm. And they don't really relate to the movie at all. So I'm assuming that's probably why it was cut. But this is also, all of these three songs were also written by Mel Levin. Um, So same composer, just, yeah, didn't make the final cut. Yeah, and not jazzy at all. And I guess it just wouldn't fit. And that might be why there's no other songs. If you only wrote one jazz number, that's probably why. Maybe all the other songs got cut because they just don't, they don't work with the sequence of music in this film. Absolutely, and I think that that goes for the, the, the next two songs as well, which I'm also going to play you. The next song that I'm going to show you is called Cheerio, Goodbye, Toodaloo and Hip Hip. Cheerio, goodbye, toodaloo, hip hip, we're on our way to London. Toodaloo, hip hip, cheerio, goodbye, we're all of us going home. Carry on, old boy, move along, old chap, we're truly off to London. Cheerio, goodbye, toodaloo, hip hip, we're all of us going home. If you told me that was cut from Peter Pan, I'd believe you. Yeah, but it doesn't fit with this movie, does it? No, if you told me it was cut from Peter Pan, I'd believe you. Yeah. This song is supposed to be in the movie uh, as they meet up with their parents and start heading back to London and they're sort of crossing all the snowy um, the snowy plains and they're being followed by Corella and, uh, and uh, oh, what are their names? Jasper and Horace. Yep. Um. And like like I said earlier, I think the thing that this movie like I think the movie was actually wise not to include these songs because it is much more tense than I feel like it would be if these songs were included in it. So wait, who was meant to sing that? The it doesn't specify. It's just the puppies. The puppies. We're gonna be like chitty up yeah. pip goodbye. What? Yeah. Yeah. What? That would be yeah. so weird. Yeah. They're terrified. Chitty so pip pip goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> So I think it was a really smart choice not to include it. And the last song is called The March of the 101. And this song is supposed to be in the movie while they're in the van. And it ends right as Corella's sort of like driving up behind him, ready to crash into him. Well, kids, we're finally off to London. Riding along like blooming millionaires. 
Just tell the shower, not even to stop for tea. And we'll be home in plenty of time to trim the Christmas tree. Soon we'll be seeing the lights of London. Once we're there, we'll never leave. Give three cheers and you will walk. We'll be back in Regent's Park. This joyful Christmas Eve. So yeah, that's uh, March of the hundred and one. It just kind of cheapens how cool the music is in the film. It does, yeah. And like I said, really smart choice not to include yeah. it. Yeah. So I think like last week we were saying how, or last episode, sorry, we were saying how much better some of the cuts, the one of the cut songs in particular was from Sleeping Beauty than what was ultimately put in there. This time I think it was yeah, really smart choice not to include them. Yeah, I just I guess I just wish I saw more musicality from Roger. Even if it was like, you know, the puppies are gone, they're all depressed, you know, when they're, it's Christmas time and the nanny comes in and says, you know, here's some Christmas cheer if there's anything to be cheery about. And I'm like, bitch, Anita just said he's got a number one record on the radio. And you're like, there's nothing to be cheery about. But anyway. Um, <laughs> if- <laughs> That's the other thing. Actually, sorry. If I could just sidetrack for one second. This is the other thought I had watching this movie. Corella like, storms in and goes... It makes a lot of references to them being really poor. They live in this fucking terrace house near Regent Park in London. That house surely is in the millions of pounds. Yeah, surely. it doesn't. It's the lady they, in the tramp problem. Like, it doesn't make any sense. No, they have a live-in nanny who cooks for them. <laughs> they are doing just fine, Corella. They don't need your money for skin. Yeah. I guess if I if I just saw Roger like even at Christmas time if he was a little bit sadder sitting at the piano trying to write another song and he can't I just feel like I want more out of the musicality of Roger, you know him at the piano yeah, be like yeah, I'm yeah. writing one last song you know just something. Yeah. <laughs> just had to get that in there, <laughs> the nanny comes in and dies of AIDS <laughs> but then is brought back to life magically. Pong girl, yeah. <laughs> I jumped over the mm, twilight box. <laughs> <laughs> better movie. Better, better movie. Better movie. Better movie. <laughs> so speaking of stuff that happens in between Cruella Deville and this, there's a scene where all of the dogs. So I think Pongo starts barking. Yeah. And he finally gets response, and then the barks go all over London. So first of all, did you notice anything about the dogs? I, yes, I did, but I'll let you say it. There are four dogs in it from Lady in the Tramp. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. Um, it's, it's, it's because a lot cute. of animators um, worked on that. But also, because we have Xerox now, we can photocopy, inverted commas, the animations from Lady in the Tramp and stick them into this movie. Yeah. So w- what you're actually seeing them do is scenes from Lady in the Tramp. So we've got Lady... We've got Jock and we've got the two dogs from the pound, the he's a tramp girl and the dog that was always with her. Yeah, okay. It was quite cute. There's also a great Dane in it named Danny. And did you, (laughs) I don't know if you picked up on him, what he looks like? No, not quite, no. So he basically looks like (laughs) Scooby-Doo. Oh, yeah. I I paused it and went, that's Scooby-Doo. Now... My research brain ticked on and I thought, okay, when did Scooby-Doo came out? And Scooby-Doo came out in the late 60s. Yeah, okay. And I thought, okay, so is Scooby-Doo somehow based on this dog? 
And thus the circle of research begins. So <laughs> Scooby-Doo was designed by an American Japanese animator named yep. Iwayo Takamato. Mm-hmm. And he was a Japanese American who was sent to the Manzana concentration camps after the Pearl Harbor attacks. Oh, Jesus. Okay. So, so basically what happened after Pearl Harbor was bombed is all the Japanese Americans were based, sort of home raided and sent off to these concentration camps. So entire families, women, children, um, all went with them. Yeah, it's almost, it like, um, it's almost like the Americans saw what the Third Reich was doing and went, hmm, okay. Yeah. And so it was sort of a way to keep them safe, inverted commas, um, because Pearl Harbor was attacked and all of a sudden um, all Japanese were uh, villains, sort of in the way that when 9-11 was attacked, anyone yeah, yeah, that was yeah. Middle Eastern was suddenly a villain. Yeah. And yeah. so the the conditions in these camps weren't great. But basically, Takamoto learnt to draw there. So he met up with someone who was an artist and he taught him to draw. And when he was released from the camps, he was seeking work as an artist and he wanted to apply to work with Walt Disney, except he didn't have a folio of work. So he created a sketchbook called Everything I've Seen based on things he'd seen um, in the camps, basically. Yeah. And went to Walt Disney and showed him that, and Walt Disney hired him. Yeah, right, and okay. he worked on Cinderella was his first film, and the last film he worked on was 101 Dalmatians. No way. He then left Disney and got a job with Hanna-Barbera, Hannah Yep. Or Hanna-Barbera, however you say it. Yep. And he designed Scooby-Doo. Very cool. And I have no doubt that he, because he, he did a lot of work on Lady and the Tramp as well. Yeah. He was an assistant to Milt Carl, who was one of the nine old men, one of the leading animators. Yep. And I have no doubt that somehow that dog was drawn by him or when he decided Scooby-Doo was going to be a Great Dane, he went back to this movie and looked at how the Great Dane was drawn yeah. and copied it. Very, because very cool. Because it's the same dog. It's the same dog. But, um, but yeah, there was my little um, investigation into Iwao Takamato. There we go. How fantastic. Mm. That brings us to the final song in the movie. Uh, which is called Dalmatian Plantation. We'll have a Dalmatian plantation where our population can roam. In this new location, our whole aggregation will love our plantation home. So originally this was a full song that Roger performed at the end of the film. And apparently there are read like story records because story records were still really big as part of Disney merchandising at this time. Okay. Yep. And the full song is on there. I could not find it, but all that's left in the film is about four lines of it. I think. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think this song is really kind of cute and it, it's kind of it jaunty and it, it doesn't have the same vibe as Corella Deville. It, it feels a bit different, but it, it's sort of in a similar vein, I suppose. It does in that sort of jovial manner. Yeah, yeah, because he's, he's like back it, into his prankster stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's like, yeah, nah, this will be fine. I'm, I'm, I'm Roger. I'm a lovable, lovable scamp. Um, <laughs> I just made a cool rhyme. Let's sing yeah. about it. A Dalmatian plantation, I say. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's quite. I think it's quite cute. I, I wish it did go longer, and um, and it it'd be cool if if we can track down that uh, the version from the the record. Uh, did you rate it? I didn't rate it because again, there just wasn't enough to rate. There's just not when you hear four lines of a song. There's just not enough to rate the arc of a song musically and lyrically. No, fair. So I. I left it out, similar to the reason I left out Canine Crunchies. If I heard the whole song, like if it was like, welcome, what's it called? Welcome to Duloc in yeah, yeah, Shrek. Yeah. <laughs> There's a whole song there to, to analyse. But when it's just a couple of lines, I found it too hard. How about you? I did rate it, but I think it, I'll, I'll defer to your judgment here and say, yeah, let's not worry about it then. I think it is a really cute mm. song. And I think that it, if it was the full version in the movie, we could rate it and it would probably rate quite highly. But um, yeah, I think you're right. I think because of the shortness of it, getting that arc start to finish and bridge and all that sort of stuff uh, doesn't mm. really work for us. But yeah, look, that's, um, that's 101 Dalmatians, guys. That is. Now... Well, I've got a little test for you. Oh, here we go. In the animated film, so we're not talking the live action, and I know even though you didn't recently rewatch the live action, it's going to totally mess with your brain here. There yeah. are eight named Dalmatians in this film. Ooh, okay. What are they? Fuck. Okay. Um, so we've got Pongo and Perdita. Yep. We have Lucky. Three. We have Rolly. Four. Oh. Patch. Ooh, good one. Five. Uh, is Daisy one of them? No. 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 There's another the two others. P names. That's all I got. There's another two P is names. There. Yeah. Uh, P- Nah, I can't think of it. Look, you did way better than I thought you would because when I tried to test myself, I started saying all the live action names, which is Two Tone, Jewel, Wizza. Um, but they're all <laughs> yeah, in okay. the, the live action. So the three that you're missing were Penny, Freckles, and a puppy that was named after Cruella Deville's favorite seasoning in the original story, Pepper. <laughs> I like it. I like it. In the original book, Cruella Deville is obsessed with pepper, so she invites them over for dinner and yeah. everything is drowning in pepper, including the ice cream. And then yeah, yeah. when she comes over, they decide <laughs> to douse her meal in pepper. And um at one point she picks up Lucky and holds it holds the puppy against her coat, going, Wouldn't this look amazing? And Lucky bites her on the ear and the ear tastes of pepper. So it's just a thing. <laughs> Angie's anecdotes. All right. So um, Angie and I are sitting there watching the movie together, as we always do. And it gets to the point where the dogs are, um, are kidnapped. And the nanny sort of runs out into the streets shouting for the police, 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 and all that sort of stuff. And she turns to me and goes, actually, no, sorry, she doesn't turn to me. She sort of like gestures to the TV. And then in the second part, she turns to me. So she goes, 
bitch, call the police. You were right next to the phone. And then she turns to me and goes, but also trauma is not a joke, so I hope she's okay. <laughs> She went right next to the phone. I actually, when she was running down the street, I was like, why didn't she call them? And then I literally went out loud, were phones invented at this point? It was the 60s, Stacey, not 1860. Oh, to be fair, very, very confusing time, the old 60s. <laughs> um, but yeah, look, that's 101 Dalmatians, guys. Uh, iconic movie. I think it's worth a watch. Uh, I really liked it. Mm, I really, I think if I had to recommend one, I'd say go watch the 1996 live action with Glenn Close. Yeah, 100%. It it adds a little bit more to it. And I'm probably going to do that tonight, actually. I think I'm going to go and chuck that on. Oh, Um, it's just, it's so good. The setup is amazing. Glenn Close should have been nominated for an award for her performance in that film. mm. So um, of (laughs) of the three songs we spoke about, we only rated one of them. However... (laughs) whilst it did win this episode by default it is also now the number one song in both our overall ranking and our music and lyrics ranking there we go guys there we go finally ousted the walrus and the carpenter (laughs) (laughs) so cruella deville is currently sitting on top of the chart with a comfy score of 34 points that's pretty good pretty good score pretty good score all right so in two weeks we have our sword in the stone episode coming out a movie that i have zero memory of So that's going to be an interesting one. So we will see you again in two weeks with our newest episode on The Sword and the Stone. And until then, stay well, stay healthy. I'm Stackers. And I'm Will. See you guys. Bye. Powerful is the Cox Network. So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply.